Welcome to We Question and Learn. We're celebrating our 19th year, How Time Flies, going into our 20th in July. And over the years, we've had many interesting guests. Today, we're going to move into the legal realm. We have a special guest on the line here, Robert D. Zeruda, who is from the Knox Law Firm. Am I correct? You're a partner there? I am. I'm, I'm a partner in the Labor and Employment Department. Okay. Well, that's good because that's the topic for the day, among some other things. So we're going to welcome this interview with you here on WQLN NPR. You've specialized in litigation, labor, and employment, one of my favorite topics from a past life, workers' compensation. The world uh, over the last two decades has changed. What has affected us to a large scale was COVID-19. What's your opinion on how this affected employers in our community? Yeah, well, certainly there's been a lot of challenges as a result of the, the pandemic and also the government's response to the pandemic. So, and, you know, it's very easy for a lot of people to think that, well, the pandemic caused all this labor shortage and everything else. But, um, you know, uh, the reality is there's actually, this was coming uh, for the last several years. Uh, there's been a talent shortage well, you know, predating the pandemic. Um, and so there's a very interesting article that was published uh, a few years ago, which talked about what's called the Great Sandemic which is without people. Um, and, and basically it was, it was dealing with the idea of um, what are the main drivers of this labor shortage. Um, and as I said, after COVID-19, everyone just you know, figured the drop off was due to the, the pandemic itself. Um, and, and, and it was really easy for us to assume that was the case. But when we look deeper into this issue, we see that there's actually three causes of labor shortage that have been preceding this issue for a long time. And they kind of refer to it as the past, the present, and the future. So the past relates to the last of the baby boomers, which is the, the biggest workforce in U.S. history, leaving the workforce. The youngest baby boomers are approaching the normal retirement age now, and many of them have retired early. Um, and you know, I think COVID probably accelerated that because a lot of um, in, individuals were concerned about their health and also concerned about technology and the re- reality that many of us had to work remote or use technology to do their jobs. And so we we're seeing. This, this big group of workers really fleeing the workforce. So that's the past. The present is the reality that the millennials have or are set to inherit more money than any other generation. Uh, many simply do not need to work full-time, uh, and so they're choosing to work part-time. They're choosing not to work for your traditional employers. They're choosing to work for themselves on their own terms. And so the, the labor participation rate from 18 to 54 is at the lowest level it's been in, in 40 or more years. And then finally, the future is the fact that, you know, this shouldn't surprise anybody, is that you know, people are getting married later, later in life and they're having fewer children. So we have basically the new workforce, which is coming in the future, which will not be as many people to work. So these three items really have caused a drop off in the labor market. While the COVID-19 has accelerated that, um, this is not something that is going to necessarily just go away once covid goes away. It's going to continue. And it's something that we're, we're going to have to deal with. And employers are going to have to find creative ways to deal with this moving forward. In your scenario, you mentioned the 18, did you say 48, 18 to 49, that demo? Yeah, 18, 18 to 54. Is when you're looking at labor participation rate, that's kind of the healthy demo of workers, 18 to 54, where those people, for the most part, historically should be working. Um, and when that labor for, when that percentage is down the lowest it's been in a long time, you know that you know your, your labor participation force is going to be down and you're not going to have as many people working. I see a lot of older folks working part-time. What's that a symptom of, do you think? Um, I think there's a couple things. I think the right now, I think the, the, the stock market is not doing uh, tremendously well, and I think that uh, some people are concerned about inflation and the future of that. So we're seeing some um, you know, it, people who maybe are on a Social Security who are still working and, and making below the threshold so they don't have to be penalized for it and can get their full Social Security, but just getting some extra money uh, to have. Um, and I think that's probably some for some people a symptom of um, the stock market and the economy struggling right now. So we have three generational things happening, folks who should be retired or are virtually retired, folks that are in between, so to speak, who have a few bucks, whether that be from investments, from family, or just able to work part-time and, and can survive on that, plus whatever other benefits they have. How does Social Security affect this? Or what effect does this have on Social Security, would you think? Well, that, that, that's a, a very big concern. I think, you know, year 
for the last several years, people have always said, oh, Social Security is going to go bankrupt, it's projected to go bankrupt. And, you know, everyone kind of explains it away. It never really happens. Um, it's always a demographic, which, you know, the government steps up and makes sure that that's a fully funded thing. But the reality is Social Security is funded um, by people who are actually working. And so if people are not working as much, um, the reserves there are, are not going to be there. Uh, and so when you have these, um, not maybe not the baby boomers, maybe Gen X um, and uh, the next generation, um, they – the funds may not be there, or at least they may not be there in as, as great amounts. Um, and so you may see the government do things like push back the retirement age, um, you know, maybe mm-hmm. reduce how much people can take out. And so these are things that are going to affect everybody. And uh, the baby boomers really, um, you know, contributed you know, greatly to, to Social Security. Uh, but the problem is with fewer people working, less people contributing, you know, do the math. It, it doesn't, doesn't, look, uh, doesn't look great for the future of Social Security. I remember paying into Social Security for years and then within the last couple of years of retiring, they raised the age. It was not a big deal. But as I look at folks behind me, over my shoulder, they're talking 74, 75, numbers that are a far cry from 65 for Medicare. What effect does that have on just business in general? Well, um, I, I think that you're, you're, you're going you're to see that, um, as far as the labor shortage on, on businesses, what you're yes. going to see is, you know, for the first time historically, the tables have turned on employers. You know, historically, employers have had this this power, this you know, this unspoken power, where you know employees needed them more than they needed the employees. If an employee didn't work out, they could just find somebody else. But here, the situation is completely different. Is that good employees are very difficult to find, especially in, in certain industries. Um, and so the, the the problem you have there is that these individuals, you know, and you know a lot of them are you know millennials who, as I mentioned before, um, who have inherited or have extra money, they don't need to work as hard. Um, they, they basically have all, have all the power, or at least most of the power, where they can demand things. They can demand more pay. Uh, we saw, you know, during the pandemic and after the pandemic, um, basically employees leaving jobs for, you know, as little as a dollar extra an hour. You know, they're with somebody for 20 years, and they're leaving somebody for, the, for this because they're in, there's like a bidding war for talent. And, and to be honest with you, there's a bidding war for people who aren't even that talented, but who are just a body who can do something and, and allow them to make some money. And I think – you know, if you, if you go to any restaurant or any service industry, you'll you'll find that service has gone down. It's not necessarily because the individuals aren't you know doing a great job at it. It's just they don't have as many people. Um, hours you know, you try to eat lunch in downtown Erie. Um, mm-hmm. you, there's not a whole lot of options, uh, and mm-hmm. people have to shift their employers uh, employees from one one restaurant to another. Uh, and so the tables have really turned. And and what we're seeing is that. Employer, em, employers are having to take a lot of steps to keep their employees happy. And, and one of the things they're doing, which I, I think is a good thing, um, is they're actually considering – some of them are hiring individuals who are basically like employee engagement specialists. Mm. And what they do is they come in and do surveys. They, they, they want to make sure that the employees are happy when they come to work. Um, they're enjoying themselves. We're seeing, you know, employers give days off for their anniversary date, their birth dates, um, having, you know, pizza parties, doing all these different things that try to keep people engaged. And, and to be honest with you, that's probably a good thing. I think people spend a lot of time at work and they should enjoy it, generally speaking. Um, and so that's probably a good thing. Um, but, you know, employers are definitely spending a lot of money to try to keep their employees happy, in addition to the fact that they have to pay them more. With that, that goes into something that I've run across many times, this concept of non-competes where you don't want an employee to leave, so you set up a contract, so to speak, so they maybe can't leave, can't go work for a competitor at least, and then the Biden administration has just done something. Could you go into that topic relative to non-competes? Sure. Non-competes um, have been used by businesses historically um, to, to protect a protectable interest. Um, so if, if, a, if a company puts a lot of time and money and resources into training individuals or into um, creating some sort of you know, secret formula or, or practice or something that they've done really well and made money off of, they want to make sure that someone, an employee, just can't come into that organization, take all that um, the money that was spent, all the resources that were spent, and basically just go to the, uh, their competitor next door and, and make their competitor a lot of money. So what they do is they, they, they have these non-compete agreements, which basically, in general terms, saying for a period of so many years, 
Um, this individual can't compete with someone who's a competitor against us. They can't work for a competitor against us. That means, you know, usually there's like a geographic limit. You know, um, it could be 60 miles. It could be across the country if it's a if, if it's a countrywide company. Uh, but it basically says you can't work for our competitors for this period of time, um, which is like a cooling period to say you can't just go from us to somebody else and and benefit our competitors. So it's really a way to protect the time and effort putting into training people, um, and, and it's really a good thing. And so what the Biden administration has proposed to do um, is basically through the, uh, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, they published a proposed rule that would prohibit employers from enforcing and imposing non-compete agreements on workers. And the, and the rule covers, as it's written, all employers, uh, which also includes independent contractors. So um, the proposed rule would not only ban traditional non-compete agreements, but it would also ban uh, restrictive covenants such as non-solicitation of employees, non-solicitation of clients and customers, and non-disclosure agreements. So if you work for somebody and, um, and you have access to their client base or you have access to their employees, um, you can say, okay, well, I'll, you know, I'm going to spend three years um, having access to this, and all of a sudden I'm going to start my, new, my own business, and I'm going to compete against my, my company. I'm going to take their employees, and I'm going to take their, their customers with me along the way. So you can understand why that would be a big concern for employers who invest all this money into it. So the Biden administration, the proposed rule is to basically make all those restrictive covenants non-enforceable. Now, I will say this is just a proposed rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, at this point in time, there's still there's a comment period, and it won't become final until you know probably several months from now, if, if, it, all, if it becomes final at all. My, my gut tells me that it's not going to become final in the way it's set up. You're going to have a lot of lobbyists from the business industries, from the chambers, who are going to say this is, this is going to be devastating to businesses who have really put a lot of time and effort into their, their um, clients, into their resources, and into their employees. And so I think, if anything, you're going to see a watered-down version of this become the final, the final bill, if at all. Uh, but we, we have seen, historically, we have seen presidents propose these types of, this type of agenda item, and it just doesn't come to fruition. Uh, it, it kind of is done in as, as kind of a political move and then all of a sudden just falls apart. So uh, that's also a possibility that we, this may not see the light of day, but employers should be aware that this is potentially coming down the line and, it, and all the non-compete agreements they have, all the restrictive covenants they have in place could become um, obsolete and non-enforceable. This is Tom Pies. This is Week Question and Learn. We're talking with Robert DiZeruda from the Knox Law Firm, an expert on labor and employment, and obviously a ton of other topics that come up relative to employers, employees. You consult mostly companies then, am I correct? Yeah, no, about 99.5% of what I do is, is represent companies. Every now and then I'll, I will represent an employee, but it may not be a unique situation. But for the most part, uh, we're, we represent employers and, and companies, and, and I work very closely with uh, HR professionals and business owners a lot. It seems like there are a ton of people, maybe that's an understatement, on social media getting up on their soapbox and maybe making some rash statements. That seems to be a symptom of our online society. What are your thoughts on that? Are there lawsuits pending? Is there litigation? Is this a real problem right now? Yeah, you know, this is one. I think one of the most interesting topics right now in labor and employment uh, area is that you know whether you like it or not, cancel culture is a real thing. Um, you know, mm-hmm. in representing employers, I can tell you that I've seen, I've seen it in real life. I've seen um, you know employees who have you know posted something on Facebook or who have made a comment on a newspaper article online that somebody disagreed with. And there's a group of people out there who, um, you know, if they see something that they disagree with, they'll, they'll become a sleuth. They'll, become a, they'll, they'll find out where you work. They'll find out everything about you. And they'll call your employer and try to get you terminated. I had this happen. Mm. You know, I represent a number of school districts, and um, it, it's, it's a frightening thing. I mean, for school districts, it's a little different because they're government employees, and they have more protections under the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. But those, that First Amendment does not apply to private sector uh, employees. So, you know, that, the freedom of speech that everyone claims, there's a misconception about that. If you work for a private company, uh, that doesn't apply to you. So, you know, you don't have that protection. So, But there are people out there who are really just trying to, you know, take away from people's lives because they disagree with what they say. So because of that, I, I do extensive training um, to employees to try to protect them, really. Um, and it's just say, be careful what you say online. We're not trying to censor you. We're not trying to stop you from saying the things you want to say. But just be aware that there are people out there who are looking to cause trouble. Um, and, and you know, you know, I had a situation at a school district where 
um, they basically called the superintendent and said, look, if you don't fire this person mm. for – I believe it was like a political comment that they disagree. If you don't fire this person, we're going to bring 100 people to your next board meeting, and we're going to we're going to you know, make you guys you – know, we're going to call you – you know, bigots or whatever, mm-hmm. and, and the threat there. And so, you know, again, in the, in the public sector, you protection. But in the private sector, I've had situations where an employer be like, you know what, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with this, what this person said. It was just their opinion. It wasn't hateful. It wasn't this. But they're threatening to boycott me. And so I have to make mm-hmm. a business decision. What do I do here? And oftentimes they're, they're, they're pressured to make a decision they don't want to do, but they feel they have to because – it's the best business decision for them. So for those reasons, I, I really recommend uh, to, to employers to really do some training for their employees. They know what protections they have, what protections they don't have, and what could be the consequences of their decisions online. That sounds like a proactive way to do it. Can someone uh, gain some advice from a, a firm relative to, let's say, education? Are you out there doing things in the community to help people out? Yeah, I mean, so what I, what I, part of my service that I offer, I do training. Uh, and again, you know, when people, I always, I always joke when I, when I, when I walk mm-hmm. into an employee training, I always say, you know, um, you know, hi, I'm Bob Zaruda. Um, uh, if, if you, if you are in a meeting with me or, or you're going to see me, it's usually not a good thing. So what I'm going to mm-hmm. try to do here is I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm going to try to give you enough uh, tips to, to prevent a uh, situation where you have to see me again or get a letter from me because those letters are usually not good letters. They're usually saying, you know, you're being disciplined or you're being fired. And so this is my, my 30 minutes or my hour to kind of tell you what you should and shouldn't do to protect them. And, and I, I honestly, you know, there's many times where I'm, I'm just, you know, doing my job and helping my client out where I'm just like, I wish this person would have known the consequences of, of them of them saying this, of them doing this, um, and you know, one of the big things that um, that comes out is um, they have these uh, you know, I don't know if you're OnlyFans and all this. Like the number of questions I get from OnlyFans is crazy. I'm actually going to be doing a segment on that on my podcast um, mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a month or so. But uh, people have no idea what the ramifications are could be for their jobs. They're like, well, this isn't doing. I'm not harming anybody, so why should I get fired? But the reality is sometimes it comes down to business. So, so I really do emphasize training your employees, educating them, making sure they're aware of everything so they don't make mistakes. It, it'll be fewer headaches for them, fewer headaches for the company. Some things I've seen lately is someone has gone online on their own whatever placement on Facebook and has made some comments. Do those people have some sort of liability Go back to how people maybe expound a little too deeply online with their opinion. What what's the legal ramification of that? Can you be sued? Well, yeah. I mean, so I mean, so there's always defamation. I mean, so if you're nah. saying something that's not true about somebody, you're saying something publicly about a private citizen that is not true. Mm-hmm. You, that could be defamation. I mean, you mm-hmm. have a little more protection when you're saying something about a politician or a public figure. Um, the burden is a little stronger to prove defamation there. But if you're giving your opinion on somebody who's a private citizen publicly, uh, absolutely, be careful. And, and I've, 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 I've seen things which make me, make me cringe because I'm like, oh, you probably shouldn't have said that. You probably should have led it with it like, you know, in my opinion or something else. You don't want to say something as a matter of fact because that could, mm. could subject you to liability. That includes saying things about companies? Or manufacturers, or a product? Um, yeah, I mean, pro- probably not as much. I mean, mm-hmm. technically, yeah. If you're making false allegations, um, you know, those could come back and haunt you. I think, um, you know, the idea that um, it's, you're almost a little more protective when you're talking about a company, um, a public company, um, a company that um, you know uh, you don't really identify any individuals by name. There could be some legal action if someone's making a false statement. Um, so, again, I think people need to be aware that, you know, unless you actually know something, um, you know, say this is my opinion or this is what it looks like, um, you can kind of get your point across without being so matter of fact. Um, because, these, you know, comments go viral these days, and if you say something that you think is only going to hit a, few, a small group, it can hit a very, very large group very quickly, and you can find yourself in some hot water. It's sometimes being better on the Internet than on the radio. I'm laughing a bit because I've seen people get 5, 10 million hits from an idea. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go. That, but, could, that could be good. Or that, that could be good. Or that could be bad. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope you go viral because I think you're planning on providing a service to the community shortly. That is, you're uh, planning on doing a podcast venue. 
Yeah, yeah. So um, I've been planning this for a, for a little bit now. And I think um, you know podcasts are a good way to get some uh, another way to get education out there. And so you know my target audience um, is, is really HR professionals and business owners. Um, and so I'm going to be sending this out to my client, but it's really going to be available for anybody um, uh, who, who wants who has access to our website, uh, my Knox Law website, who wants to listen to them. And they're going to be 10 to 15 minute small small seg- segments about different topics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, I'm, I'm going to talk about you know social media stuff in a little more detail. I'm going to talk about things that really impact employers and HR professionals on a daily basis because I feel, I feel like a lot of times things come up and they don't know what to do. It's a unique situation. They're not sure if they want to call a lawyer about it. They're not sure if they want the you know the the, the lawyer clock to start ticking, and they just want kind of a little a little insight into the situation. And so my hope is that you know when these when these individuals are on their lunch break and they're driving into work and maybe they have one of these issues um, in, in front of them or about to face them during that day, they can, you know, listen to the podcast, maybe get some pointers on it and maybe help them along the way. So that's really the goal. And, and to be honest with you, my plan is to bring on, you know, business owners, um, maybe some other attorneys, other people who, who can kind of tell stories. I think people learn um, better through examples and I think once people realize that, and I could t- I could tell anybody this is that the same situations come up over and over over again in, in mm-hmm. my job, and people think that their situation is unique, and they, how how do I address this unique situation? But I think through this podcast, they're going to find that a lot of people share the same stories or similar stories to them that could help them in addressing them for themselves. Is one type of industry more challenging than another? I've lived in a lot of office situations, but I've been in many manufacturing environments. Which is worse, or are they equally the same? Um, you know, it varies. I, I represent a lot of school districts, um, and, you know, th- th- they tend to have um, fr- some frequent problems. Um, I think when you're talking about, um, you know, blue-collar factories, um, you're, you're talking more so performance issues mm. than anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're doing white-collar, um, smaller offices tend not to have as many problems. Once, they, once the number of employees increases and people are working closer together, you're eventually going to find some conflict of personalities, um, and it's going to start. It's going to create some maybe some tension, some issues. Um, bigger employers have more issues because they have FMLA, which is 50 employers or more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, other things like the ADA, which is 15 employers or more. So the bigger you get, the more the more employers you have, the more issues you have in theory. Um, but as far as um, you know, where I get the most calls from, it's kind of all over the place. Like I said, I represent a lot of school districts, so that's a big portion of what I do. Um, but I also think that, you know, where you have these industries that have, you know, you know revolving doors, people aren't there as long. Uh, they tend to be people who get in trouble more often or have issues more often. And, you know, it's not uncommon to get a lot of calls from, from those folks. In your opinion, in the last couple of minutes here, has the Internet or the media caused people to be more prone to calling a lawyer, prone to wanting to sue? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that the more people read about lawsuits, they only read about the lawsuits that, you know, where people are making millions of dollars. One of the biggest <laughs> ones we remember from 20, 20, 30 years ago, the, the hot coffee at McDonald's. And, yeah. you know, the headline was someone gets all millions of dollars for this coffee. Um, the, the, the outcome of that case was actually it was it was significantly reduced after the fact to mm-hmm. uh, a pretty small amount. And once attorney's fees were taken out, that individual really didn't get that much. But they see the headline. So the mm-hmm. more and more people hear about uh, lawsuits in the in the in the newspaper, uh, on, on social media, the more they think it's an easy way to, to, to win money. And I will say this, the culture, the, the younger people growing up, um, they, they tend to have more of a uh, mindset of, of being, being victims, um, and I don't mean that in a critical way. Maybe it's a correct way, but they tend to they think like if someone doesn't like me from if I'm not if someone's criticizing me, it's because of something else. It's because of something they shouldn't be. It's not my performance. It's something else. And so we are seeing people who their first instinct is if I'm getting criticized, it's probably because they're discriminating against me or they're harassing me or something else. And that so in that mind, it does create more litigation. I think we are seeing you know a rise in that um, as a result of it. As some advice to employers, performance appraisals, what's the best procedure for that in order to have good records, so to speak? Well, documentation is, is the word I use a uh, hundred times a day, mm-hmm. and it's very important to make sure that an employer makes their expectations clear to an employee. Uh, they should do that from the start, uh, but when you start noticing, seeing some red flags and seeing uh, an employer who, an employee who is struggling to do things, 
you want to basically start documenting right away. So you have the you have the narrative at the end of it. You can say, look, here's the deal. We made clear our expectations of you at, in the beginning. We did it again. We saw you struggling. We put you on a performance improvement plan. You know, here's here's documentation showing you didn't meet our expectations. And so now I think it's time that we part. And when we part, when you part with that employee, for them to say, oh, well, this was because of this or because of this or some illegal reason, say, well, no, no, no. Look at the documentation. We we made it very clear to what we wanted to do. We gave you objective mm-hmm. things we wanted you to accomplish. You didn't do it. This is not subjective. This is objective. Mm-hmm. And that's the key. Documentation will save you. I tell a lot of people is that I, 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 I like to think of myself as a, as a preventative doctor, right? Bring, bring attorney in from the start or at least have them guide you along the way yes. so that at the end yes. of the day when, 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 when the yes. problem happens, you have this, your, your narratives in place, not the employee's narrative. And sometimes an employer is the first one to notice that an employee may have some other problems. You may be helping them out in another part of their life. That's not the employer's prerequisite, but it's certainly a charitable thing to do, don't you think? Absolutely. And I, I think that employers want their employees to succeed. And I think that, you know, when an, if you do it the right way, when an employee is terminated for performance or otherwise, it's really because of, of what them. It's because, you know, and the employer made it clear to them, they gave them, they counseled them, they gave them all the opportunities to succeed, and they didn't do it. And so that's the whole idea of progressive discipline. That's the idea of performance improvement plans. Is the employer, to hire somebody costs money, right? And so they want to take that investment. They want to, they want to make sure they take care of it. They protect it. And so they want you to succeed. They'll give you chances. Um, but at the end of the day, if you don't meet those and it's well documented, the employee has nowhere to look except for themselves as to why they, they um, you know, didn't make it happen. Attorney Robert D. Zeruda, shareholder, partner at the Knox Law Firm in Erie, Pennsylvania. I want to take a second here to thank you for this good advice, for this information, and for being a participant on the program. We hope we can have you back again sometime in the near future. Thanks for having me, Tom. I'm happy to come back whenever you'd like. Welcome to We Question and Learn. We're in our 19th year here on the air at WQLN NPR. We're also on NPR One as a podcast and about a dozen other podcast venues as well. And we look for very special guests in the community to talk about important things that are going on. And I was fortunately introduced to this person from a friend of mine, Jonathan Really, And he mentioned the new executive director, and I believe the first executive director, of a wonderful new organization called the Erie Cancer Wellness Center. So let me introduce Sarah Humphrey. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here. And I, I am well and hope you are as well, too. Well, let's start from scratch, as we, we typically do. How did this all come about? How did you get involved, and how did this good organization come to be established? Sure. So my background is nursing. Um, I have my master's in, in leadership and administration. But my in, in a nursing role, when I moved to Erie, I I took a job at the Regional Cancer Center, and this was back in, I think, about 2011. And I was there for a few years and ended up starting the wellness and support program at the Regional Cancer Center. We had had some support groups that the social worker there had started, but um, through my work in survivorship, I really saw a need for um, more non-medical support programs. So I had a phenomenal leadership team at the Regional Cancer Center. And so I started these wellness and support programs from the ground up. And um, they became quite successful with patients and their families. Um, you know, we, we saw that there was a real need for these non-medical support services because cancer affects us in many layers, not just the physical. So it was through that program that I got to know the Regional Cancer Center Foundation Board because they supported the program um, there. So um, through that partnership, um, you know, we just all felt that these programs were very needed in our community. We saw the impact that we were making and then, as you know, most people know, the, the Regional Cancer Center was jointly owned by the hospitals, but um, started to dissolve in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, the hospitals then, you know, built their own cancer institute, 
And I have to say, they're phenomenal treatment centers. We are very lucky in our community to have both Hillman, Erie, and AHN Cancer Institute. Um, you know, along with we have the VA and Lee Comcori, but, you know, phenomenal treatment cancer centers. But what was missing was that non-medical support. So with some of the members, the former members of the RCC board, the foundation board, and myself, we decided to start a new nonprofit um, offering those types of services for the people in our community who are impacted by cancer. So that's what we did. You started from scratch then. And my next, yes, and my next big question, did you start with a board? Did you start with a fund? How did you establish the foundation for this organization? Yeah, that's a great question. So the Regional Cancer Center Foundation Board, after the dissolution of the RCC, some of those members from the board, not all of them, but a a key group of them, um, decided to form a new um, board called the Erie Cancer and Wellness Foundation. Mm. And they were able to retain some of the funds from grateful patients and families from RCC. And they created an endowment with the Erie Community Foundation. And at the time, they weren't quite sure what they wanted to be, whether they wanted to just be medical grantors. Um, You know, they were trying to figure that out. And through all this process, I had kept in touch with all of them. At this point, I had moved to one of the hospitals. Mm -hmm. Um, to help develop their oncology navigation program. But I had always kept in touch with them. And when it became pretty clear that neither hospital was um, going to offer these non-medical support services, um, the board approached me and asked me if I'd be willing to, you know, take on the role of executive director to to get it a brick-and-mortar building started. Since this is radio, tell us about where you are physically. Where is your location? Yeah, so, so we looked at many different places, um, and I chose a place. I wanted to be easily accessible. So we are right off of 79 in the Bayfront, directly off of Pittsburgh Avenue, just south of 12th Street. So we're literally a hop, skip, and a jump to both 79 and the Bayfront. Um, we are in a plaza. It's about a 4,500-square-foot space with ample parking, and um, I I was very excited to find it. I think it's a great starting place for us, and we completely renovated the facility to really make it a space of uh, healing and wellness. So this is an open clinic? I'm trying to picture how it works physically. Yeah, so so the, again, the, the space is 4,500 square feet, and we, we one of the things that was important to me was ensuring that we have enough space that we can offer multiple programs at once. Again, we're offering non-medical support. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we have different rooms for different activities and different programs that we offer. So people can come in, and, you know, we can have four or five things going on at once. Now, is this consulting space? Are they offices? Or do you have an open architecture type format? How does this work? Yeah, so um, again, the key being non-medical support. And when when I developed this program, it was key for me to make sure that we offer a little bit of what anybody who is impacted by cancer might be looking for. So, and, and I say anyone, because it's very important to know that what we offer is not just for people living with cancer, but it's also for their families. Cancer mm. is a ripple effect throughout the family. It affects everyone. So it was very important for me and our board to ensure that we care for everyone in a household or even friends, support persons who are dealing with that person's cancer. So we might offer, just to give you an idea of the different programs, So. We offer evidence-based wellness programming. Hmm. So by evidence-based, I mean there's research behind it that we know some of these programs will help people with the side effects of cancer, Mm -hmm. physical, mental, emotional, psychosocial, spiritual side effects. So, for example, we might offer um, a gentle restorative yoga practice. Mm. We offer Qigong, which helps with balance. Balance and fatigue can be one of the biggest side effects of cancer mm-hmm. treatment. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, we know Qigong helps with balance. Um, we offer different wellness programs. In fact, one of the radiation oncologists from UPMC Hillman is certified in different types of movement and meditation programs, and he just gave a class here last week. So we offer wellness and movement. We also offer support groups. So right now we have eight different support groups for people living with cancer. And we've also opened up our space to the community groups in town, linked by Pink, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and a longstanding prostate group. So support groups are one of the things we offer. Um, we offer oncology massage or massage just for people living with cancer. Our massage therapist is certified in cancer care, and that is a wonderful, restorative, and relaxing half an hour for people who are being treated. Um, we have a beautiful wig salon, so anybody who's lost their hair because of chemo can come in in a compassionate space and receive a beautiful wig free of charge or a mm. head wrap, a scarf, um, whatever they may may want. The average cost of a wig is about $200, and we offer them completely free of charge. That's probably been our most sought-after resource. We've given away over 70 wigs since we've opened. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's just a, a couple of examples. I mean, we offer all art therapy we're offering. Um, you know, quite honestly, Tom, the needs are so immense. <laughs> That yes. it's hard to condense it, you know, to what we can handle right now. You have everything I see here on your website. Let's plug the website because this is phenomenal. If you just click the get support button, yes. there's enough yes. for a good hours reading and the programs. You've mentioned some and I think you've just touched on them because I, I believe they're much more in depth than that. You bring speakers in to or or medical people to help conduct these? Yes. So we, uh, you know, again, we have wonderful collaborations with both hospital systems, just really great support from them. And so we, you know, we have um, medical experts from each facility that will offer to come in, come in and give talks, um, experts in the community who will come in and talk about holistic healing or wellness. You know, nutrition is a big topic. Um, so we have people come in and talk about that as well. Sometimes, you know, people might not want to come to a yoga class, but they want to come in here about a talk on, um, you know, nutrition or how to stay strong before or after treatment. So that's why we really try to offer a little bit of everything. It's amazing. I've seen these scattered all about the net. And this is the first time, forgive me for not having seen it before, that I've seen dozens of programs all in one spot, all in a nice, concise menu all for people with different needs. Is this a new concept? You mentioned it's it's been proven. Has it been proven in other cities? Is this something that's happened all over the country? That's actually a great question. So we did not enter into this lightly. Um, mm-hmm. Since 2016, I've been traveling to other cancer wellness centers. Mm. There is one in Cleveland, one in Akron, mm-hmm. um, two in Pittsburgh that recently merged into one. I've actually even been to one north of Chicago, one in Washington, D.C., because I really wanted to see how they work, you know, how they sustain themselves, what the needs are. So, you know, we had a lot of wonderful um, people help guide us through this process. And we treat a lot of cancer in Erie, and we treat a large geographic Mm -hmm. region. So... Um, you know, it, when I worked at one of the hospitals prior to starting this, you know, it was awful when people would say, hey, do we have a support group that I can go to? Or, you know, is there anywhere that I can get a free wig? And, you know, we had to say, no, I'm sorry, there, there's not. So this, this is a critical need in our community. And, and I really look at it as closing the circle of cancer care. Again, we have tr- wonderful treatment facilities. We have access to clinical trials and research. But it was this, the non-medical piece, the support piece that was really missing in our community. I compliment yeah. you on your board because you have a good referral there who's highly experienced in this, this area and this arena. You, oh, the board has been phenomenal, yes. And the concept, once again, is new, new to this region, but there are other facilities like this elsewhere in the country, would you say? Correct, Great. yes. And there are 
They're very busy. You know, both like in Pittsburgh, UPMC and Allegheny Health Network refer to this nonprofit, refer their patients. Same in Cleveland. You know, the big hospitals refer their patients to the to the neutral nonprofit. So um, it's not it's not a new concept um, in other parts of the country at all. Let's talk about a tougher issue. How are you funded? How did this come about? And how are you maintaining these important services in our community? Yeah, that's that's a that's a wonderful question as well. So, you know, that when I went to visit these other facilities, that was the same question I had. How are you sustainable? Because everything we offer is at no charge. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's an important fact to know that, you know, cancer... I'm throwing out a statistic, but the average person pays 42% of their annual income in out-of-pocket expenses related to their cancer care. And these are people that have medical insurance. So, you know, most people cannot afford the support and wellness programs on their own. So everything has to be at no cost. Now, across the board, whether I was in Chicago, D.C., Cleveland, Pittsburgh, or Akron, Um, The funding stream was the same, which is about 80% of their funding comes from private donations and Mm. foundations, 15 to 20% or, you know, 10 to 20% comes from the hospitals, and then the the rest is in grants, and we are following that funding stream. So, um, you know, the majority of our donations, of our come from private donations. So we, we had a really wonderful first Erie Gives. I think we were number 28 on the leaderboard and we hadn't even been open yet. So <laughs> everybody has, you know, is impacted by cancer and that's just the unfortunate reality. So I think most people can really um, appreciate and support what we're doing here. We're talking with Sarah Weiss Humphrey. She's the executive director of the, I'll call it new, Erie Cancer Wellness Center. Not a new concept, but a new concept in our community. And the more I hear about all the programs that you are doing, how do you manage this with your staff? Or do you have volunteers that help? How is your organization structured? We have three full-time staff members. So it's myself as executive director, Kim Mm -hmm. Connolly as our program director, and Kristen Hubert as our office and marketing um, coordinator. So it's just the three of us. So we are busy. (laughs) Yes. Um, But we... We've had a great outpouring of support with volunteers. So I want to say right now we have over 50 volunteers signed up. Wow. And so we're in the process now of trying to figure out how best to utilize them. And, and not quite honestly, that's been part of our problem is we've been so busy with the day-to-day that, you know, we haven't had the time to really sit and go through how we can best utilize volunteers. Um, I always laugh. I say I, I need a volunteer coordinator to help <laughs> yes, coordinate <you> <laughs> the volunteers. Um, but we, you know, we're already starting to utilize some volunteers, for example, for evening hours, because it's important that we offer evening hours for the folks that um, work during the day. And, you know, we can't be here, you know, 18 hours a day. So we help the volunteers will help cover evening hours for us. Um, And I expect that as we grow, um, our volunteer base will grow as well. We will depend greatly on volunteers. Oh, if someone wanted to, and maybe uh, you want to hold off a bit because you have quite a few, but it never hurts to have too many. If someone wanted to volunteer, what's the best way to find you? The best way is to go onto our website, which is www.eriecancerwellness.org, and there's a tab at the top that says Get Involved. They can click on that, and there's a volunteer form, and then there's also a professional volunteer form. So, for example, say you are an attorney and you want to volunteer to give a class on living wills or power of attorneys. Um, you know, you can sign that form as well if you want to use your professional skills to volunteers um, too. So, and, and on those forms, we, we have all the areas of need that you can check. You know what? There's probably someone from every type of industry that 
they could volunteer something in the way of support or education. This is a really interesting program. Usually you hear about the medical side and you hear about the, the sad story, so to speak. This is a ray of optimism as to how to proceed with your life, how to manage it, which direction should you go? That's it, Tom. And, and that's what I say is, is our goal is to help people live through their cancer journey. That's what we're here to do. And, you know, many people who are being treated by for cancer still have to go to work every day and they still have to mm -hmm. take their kids to their after school activities mm -hmm. and pay their bills. And, you know, so that's really what we're here is, is to help somebody live through that cancer journey. This is a fine program. Some of the things you do involve fundraising, which is nowadays a touch tough, but you're willing to accept wig and beauty supplies. What other kinds of things are you in need of? You know, like you said, we always are in need of wig and beauty supplies, jewelry, scarves, uh, those types of things. But quite honestly, just basic office supplies, you know, coffee yeah. paper, yeah. Um, you know, all of that basic things. We are starting our, you know, trying to offer more programs virtually. You know, our beautiful eerie winters Yes. sometimes don't make it easy for people to attend. So um, we just recently had a donation of televisions to help us. Oh. on that, um, you know, to get that started. But basic things like stamps, uh, you know, those yeah. honestly, coffee, uh, Keurig cups, you know, those that basic type office supplies are really what we're in need of most at, at this time. For those of us who've been in the nonprofit world, it's amazing how much these sundries, as we call them, paper, et cetera, along with that, eat up your budget. So oh, a physical yeah. donation is could be as important as a monetary donation. This is great. It's true. Yes, it helps us function day to day. Well, you, you have books listed here. Be careful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and that, you know, that goes to our family and children's program. So, you know, we, we really want to grow um, our children programming. So, you know, that's why we ought, we ask for, for books and um things like that. Our, our, our goal really is to help build a community here. So, um, you know, that those types of donations are important as well. Art supplies, you know, the, again, all important. You brought up another issue that's sort of sad and, and concerning. How do you service, how do you help children? So we, you know, we have a lot of young people that come in who are being treated for cancer, um, you know, and, and they have children. And so ah. we are just starting a children's support group starting next week, which is facilitated by Anne-Marie Kronk, who's the social worker at Hillman Erie. And she has been doing this for a long time. She's wonderful at it. And so, you know, you take the kids where they are and you know you help educate them about cancer though it's important to know that they do need to know that their parent or grandparent guardian does have cancer before coming in but just talking to them about their feelings um, working on art projects with them you know art therapy is a phenomenal way to help kids um, open up about what they're you know they might not even know how they're feeling so you know we have art therapy for children mm. we're starting this uh, children's support group and and as we grow we hope to build more family support groups as well or family support programs where the whole family can come in what are you doing on the fundraising side? You're just not quite there yet. I know you have steadfast board members and, and great support from the past. What are your needs moving into the future as you look at your budget? Yeah, so so fundraising and development are, you know, really going to be my priority moving forward. You know, we, um, we are definitely in need of monetary donations to keep these programs going. Um, through our board, which is a wonderful and dedicated board, you know, we started out by just hosting walkthroughs and bringing potential donors in to see our facility. Um, that's proven to be successful. I think when somebody comes in to see not just what we do, but why we do it, um, again, most people have been impacted by cancer. But as we move forward, um, you know, we will probably be looking at a comprehensive campaign down the road mm -hmm. um, to really, you know, give us the, the, the funds that we need to keep operating. 
So you, we're doing that. We're also going to be, we, we have our big community event, which is in September. It's a duathlon, which we're really excited about. So uh-huh. we need sponsorships for that. So uh-huh. um, we're working on corporate sponsorships, but um, definitely donor development will is a will be a priority of mine, along with our, our exceptional board. Well, it's a great program. There is more here on, on this website than I can read in just a couple of minutes, which is an accolade to your organization, but particularly all the things you've listed as being important for the community and for the care of, of folks who have faced this dreadful disease. As you move forward, and I know everything's relatively brand new, where do you see this going in a few years? Do you have any other aspirations or ideas that you would like to see implemented, let's say, in the next three or four years? I do. So, you know, we we have a really great framework of, of the programs and services that we have. So we, we want to take that framework and just expand upon it. You know, keep bringing more people into our facility. Keep getting out into the community so everybody knows about us. Um, and it's very important to me as well to outreach into um, the varied communities that we have here. So the, the new Americans, the refugees, the immigrants, mm-hmm. the black and brown communities, um, and ensuring that you know everyone has representation here because cancer does not discriminate. Right. Everybody has cancer. So that's, that's a big, um, something that's very important to me to keep building those relationships um, as we go forward. And again, just expand the programs that we have so every need is met. Beyond the physical struggle that people have to encounter with cancer, you're also enhancing someone's mind, their spirit, and their sense of humor, I believe. You're, you're working so that they can have a, a better life as they move forward after conquering this horrible disease. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, Tom, too, because, you know, a lot of people, when they're done with cancer treatment, you know, their friends and family will say, all right, congratulations, you beat it. But that's, that's not the case for many people. You know, it always lives within them. Um, you know, they're always afraid, will it come back? How will I know it will come back? Um, you know, the physical side effects for many people can affect quality of life. So it's not just during treatment, but it can last, the mental and emotional, spiritual side effects can last for months and even years after somebody has been treated for cancer. So, um, you know, that's important for people to understand too, that it's, it's not just for people in treatment, but it's for people who um, are still struggling with, with all of the other side effects after treatment. Sarah, you've done an excellent job describing the mission, vision, and your hopeful outcomes in support of this community. A note of thanks for being in charge of a wonderful organization and your staff and your 50, maybe even now 100 volunteers. (laughs) (laughs) They can contact you. Best way is online, would you say? Yeah, or they can give us a call. Our our number is 814-651-0920 is our direct line for, for anybody that's does not enjoy going online or people can just stop in we're here every day from nine to five and we have people every day just popping in to say hello and seeing what we're about so we would love just face-to-face visits as well it's a really wonderful opportunity to have your services here in northwest pennsylvania so for that thank you and thank you for this opportunity to chat with you this is great thank you and you know i just want to finish up by saying um, you know, we are independent, so it, regardless of where you're treated, whether it's here in Erie or Cleveland or Roswell, um, you know, mm-hmm. you're welcome to come into our, our center. It does not matter, you know, where you're treated or what type of insurance you have. So thanks again, Tom, for the time today. I really appreciate it. We, enjoyed being on. We appreciate your perspective and your enthusiasm, and maybe in about six, eight months, we'll give you another call and get an update on all the things that are happening with your organization in our community. Sarah Humphrey, Executive Director of this great Erie Cancer Wellness Center, thank you for being on the air here. Thank you, Tom.